Hello, listeners of Killing Dad, A First Degree Mistake, The Crystal Howell Story. We have another bonus episode for you where we share more legal documents coming into us back in Crystal's version of events. And we talk to Holt, the roommate, in episode six for her thoughts, plus an encore of Crystal singing. Let's jump first into these new legal documents that we continue to uncover. Melissa? Well, for some of you still out there questioning Crystal's version of events, I wanted to address one more of her abuse claims as we continue to corroborate her version. Now, she describes to us in one of the episodes being on a camping trip with her dad while he rented out the house for extra cash, which he often did. On this particular day, she was exhausted. It was a long day for dad and daughter. They were out gathering wood and hiking when he, per usual, started ranting about his ex-wife, Christina. And Crystal, for once, she decided in this moment to speak up and confront him. Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, you know, get over it. It's been years. And it was then where she says that her dad pushed her down and started choking her with a log. Now, we've obtained the DSS, Department of Social Services Reports. Now, listen, this is about 50 pages long of this incident alone. And because she reported it right after the camping trip, she returned to school. She found a counselor that she trusted. She reported it and a bunch of visits and documentation spawned from this. Now, I'm going to read you a few excerpts. From it uh, just to kind of corroborate, and then we'll talk about it. So, the first one here from the DSS report says this is when she ran away to a friend's house and she was telling the mom she didn't want to go home. She feared her dad. And this is how it all spawned and, and came to light as well. So, she says that she told the family member that she was 17 years old and living on her own. They were going to take her in and let her stay with them. And she told them about a time when she was camping with her father and she had to confront him. He lost his temper with her, knocked her down on the ground, and he was choking her. The reporter learned this from the family. Now, Crystal, when found by said reporter, had told the reporter that she was in fact running away from home. Intake has a copy of the police report along with a forensic interview. The reporter states that the child presents no sign of harm. There was no loss of consciousness, marks, sore throat, or lack of vision during the choking event. This was to have occurred a month prior. There were no criminal charges. The father had told the reporter that the child had been sneaking out in the past. The investigator then called Michael the father. Michael denied the allegations. Investigator told said talk to Aspire, the counselor at Aspire. A woman that works there stated that Michael is very involved with his daughter in getting help and does not believe Crystal. The investigator did a safety plan with Michael, signed that there would be no physical altercations between him and his daughter but marked it as a safe environment with no substantial evidence. Investigator obtained collaterals from Michael and contacted them. They had no concerns whatsoever. Investigator then contacted the biological mother, Christina, and she had no concern. And she stated that Crystal lies a lot and gets in trouble a lot. 
Now, the last document I want to read to you is on a welfare check. It is when someone came out to the house and did a welfare check on this alleged abuse inside of the home. And it says, Investigator Moore met with Mr. Howell and Crystal. Crystal appeared to be clean and healthy. She was texting when the investigator arrived. The investigator notes that this home is extremely large with a large table in the dining room that can seat at least 12 people around it. Mr. Howell has two dogs in the home. The home has six bedrooms and several bathrooms. Mr. Howell rents the home out sometimes for vacationers. The investigator noted that there are working smoke detectors, carbon monoxide detectors in the home. The investigator noted that Mr. Howell had a beer in the living room that he was drinking, but did not appear intoxicated. And the investigator ends with the family had plenty of food to eat and they have two large fireplaces. Um, This is absurd. (laughs) This is the most absurd DSS report and goes to what Crystal has always said is they come to her house, they see the fancy sprawling wealth and money, and they think what could possibly be so bad living here. I'm glad that this social worker decided to turn, you know, Inspector Clouseau, uh, you know, or Sherlock Holmes and, you know, noted that there's 12 seats at the table, not eight, not 10, but 12 Thank you for that observation. Oh, just stunning work by you, social worker Moore, whoever you are. I mean, there's so many red flags in this that it just bears so much witness that it totally needed further investigation. I mean, just the fact that the father told the social worker that she'd been sneaking out in the past. Well, there had to have been something, you know, reason why she had been sneaking out in the past, why she was running away from home. You know, the fact that she's making a claim that she was choked. Of course, there's not going to be any markings a month later, but it bears further investigation. And why nobody investigated this is still just beyond comprehension. Also in the 50 plus pages for the DSS report, Crystal tells the social workers to their faces, she doesn't trust them. And I think the most poignant, um, chilling, one of the many stories that Crystal tells us in the series is that moment that she's in that 45-minute silent car ride in the back of a police vehicle when she finally had the courage to speak up and say, my dad hits me. And the cop is driving her back to her father on the mountaintop. As soon as he turns the corner, he scoffs. And that was the first indicator of this kid must be joking because he was just blown away by, you know, the appearance. And and isn't that a shame? And I, you know, I've been doing this as a crime and news correspondent for, you know, 15 plus years. I've read so many of these DSS reports from horrific abuse, small to big. And it's, you really have to have a well-trained police officer and uh, social worker to pick up on what the eye cannot see when you can't see the physical and to literally walk through the home as if you're selling it for the next real estate property on the market, you know, a sprawling 12 seater table, two fire pits, 
Uh, it's a joke. Well, you hit the nail on the head, Melissa, and I really look. Social services, DSS, they, they, they do great work. They really, really do. And I'm not disparaging the organization whatsoever. I just think as it relates to this one particular case and to Crystal, that the system did fail her in these particular incidences. And I'm not disparaging their work or anything like that, but how many more reports do you think are like this? Not about Crystal, but about hundreds, thousands, millions of other kids around the country that may be in Crystal's similar situation right now where people are overlooking something that is staring them in the face. And to me, that's what that's what's heartbreaking to me is how many more people are like Crystal out there right now that are screaming silently at the top of their lungs for help and that are not being heard. Not only is an, a paper trail important, you know, Kelly, as we've been talking about here, but so are eyewitness accounts. And thankfully, uh, there is one with Crystal and Michael Howell. There is one person that bared witness. Joining us is Holt, who is in episode six, titled The Roommate. Now, Holt, you are critical as the eyewitness to see what no one else did, the inner workings of Michael Howell and Crystal's dynamic. Holt, thank you so much for joining us in this bonus episode. Uh, what stood out for you so far in the series? I think the thing that has stood out the most is I'm getting the answers that I have needed. Um, I've been questioning for years since no one would talk to me. I reached out to the sheriff's department and I've been interviewed by the state bureau, but nobody would ever answer anything. I didn't have any contact with Crystal until the last couple of years. There have been so many questions because all of this came out of left field for me. And Crystal, as we're going through the podcast, has actually answered every point that I've questioned. And everything is truly believable that she said. The things that Mike has done that I did not see are very credible. And, and I can see Mike doing those things, like leaving her at the campsite or threatening her at the campsite the first time. I think what's important um, as we go through the case file and all of the evidence are your text messages. Uh, not only were you the person that Michael Howell text on the day he was murdered, you were the last text exchange uh, with him, but there's also, and we, we talk about that in the series, but there's another message that he sent you a few months before the murder and, um, you know, I want to talk about that. So I'm going to read it to you right now. And I just want you to give us a reaction to it. The text message reads, this is you to Michael Howell. Cool. I'll let you know first of the week. Hope you get out and play some this weekend. And Michael responds, dropped out of the golf course, kind of giving up on life. And you respond, damn it, Michael, that's just wrong. It's almost time to play, my friend. And client Mark, who lives in Phoenix, has tickets for the 16th green for tomorrow. He's so excited. And Michael responds, my kid sucks. Obama sucks. My dog is spoiled. No one has my back. No friends. Reality has sunk in. And you say, I'm going to have to think about that for a bit. 
we at least know Theodore is spoiled. Ha ha ha. Don't ever give up. You were trying to make it lighthearted. But to me, that seems like a man just in emotional turmoil. What do you look back and knowing what you know to see with that text exchange? Oh, it was very, very critical to the things I think that happened. Mike was ready to die. He told me that several times. But when he told me that he dropped out of the golf course, he played uh, generally every Tuesday with a group of men. And Mike's whole entire existence and any joy that he had in his life was revolved around golf. So when he told me that he dropped out of the golf course and that he was given up on life, it was very concerning to me and I did not want him to give up, but we had had so many, many conversations through the years, all on the same subject about his hatred and his, he just, he was never going to give up. He was ready to die and it was winter. So I, I just think that it, he had given up on life at all. Even though I know that he had bought the piece of property next door to build a small cabin, so when the lodge would rent, he would have a place to go, that somehow made me think that he still was going to live, but that he was never going to truly live with any, any love or joy in his being. And why that's so important to me is I remember a conversation Crystal had with detectives and she kept repeating as a 17-year-old girl, um, I was trying to help him. I was trying to help him. He wanted to go. I was trying to help him. And the the homicide detectives are sitting here like, are, are you insane? But it, it it's interesting that what was in Crystal's mind at that time is what you are um, depicting in in retreat receiving in in your mind from his mental state as well, you know, and these are different timelines, and they were really um, parallel. I think at the end of the day, Michael was sitting on the side of a mountain. It's very isolated there, especially in winter. There aren't many people who live there year round, and. I think as time went on, and especially after I left, he didn't have anybody. His friends, the ones that he had were in Augusta, and I think they had really, he didn't reach out to them much, He and they didn't, vice versa, and Crystal's sister did not reach out or respond to Mike at all. So basically, I think his his only thought at that point was that he's all alone. There's nothing left for him. And like I said, he said many times, you know, he was ready to die. He's just killing time. That was his phrase. I'm just killing time. Hold, you came into the picture when, when Michael was already, shall I say, down and out, right? For lack of a better analogy. How hard was it for you to watch that continued downward spiral? And 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 try to be there to help him through it, yet he wasn't receptive at all. I loved being there. To me, it was away from everything that was hurt, hurting me. And 
we would always go on hikes on the mountain. I loved the mountain. And he knew that I loved the mountain. I was always picking wildflowers in the summer. And he was very amenable to that. But there was always at his very core this, this feeling that nobody cared, that he had this betrayal. And he was never going to give it up. And he, he would talk about this girl that he dated. Um, I believe her name was Patty. And I think he liked her very much. And of course, she finally broke up with him. And it all goes back to the same thing. Mike never took any responsibility for the way that he felt, for the way that he acted. It was always someone else's fault. It was Crystal's fault that Patty left. It was Crystal's fault that he had to go down and pick her up at school or he had to go to court or he had to take her to Christina for the weekend. And he just never would let any of it go. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And as I stated, he just deteriorated. He found no joy. Even when we were in the most beautiful places, the most gorgeous hikes in the mountains, he would just do the hike and be done with it. Now, in no way are we suggesting this is an excuse for his murder. We are just simply corroborating Crystal's version of events, which again goes back to the 30 to life sentence and nobody believing that he was mentally deteriorating and she was suffering this abuse with him isolated on a mountaintop. It, it just all of this goes to back her story and cooperate her claims of abuse, which, you know, sometimes it was corroborated and documented other times it was not. So this doesn't um, lighten the weight of responsibility. It just goes to tell you that Crystal is, is telling the truth. And on that, we want to transition to um, a text message exchange between you and her mom, Christina. Now, it's important to mention this was after the big explosive event between you and Michael Howell. You were living together. You said something. You made a little comment, uh, seemingly harmless, about his discipline tactics. And he flew off the handle into this rage, told you to get out, pack your bags. You literally fled in the middle of the night. Um, is there anything you want to kind of set up before we read your text messages between Christina, his ex-wife, and you? I do. In retrospect, I would like it to be known that I didn't know about Michael's aunt. I had no communication with her. The only person I knew about was Christina. She was the only person I had to reach out to after everything went down the way it did and I had to leave. I couldn't certainly take Crystal with me. Mike was not going to let that happen. I did not know what he was capable of at that point, but Christina was someone that I had hoped would step up to the plate and do what you have to do as a parent to ensure the safety of your child. However, historically, it doesn't appear that, that she has done that. So it was kind of a futile attempt, but it was an attempt all the same. 
Very chilling in retrospect. Um, so Kelly is yeah. going to read your words, and then I'm going to uh, read Christina's response, and then we'll bring you in. So the first one reads, as far as I'm concerned, Mike can sit up on that mountain and be the king of the world because everybody is weak in his mind, and he is the smartest and strongest person. He will die a lonely, lonely, pitiful man. I feel really bad for Crystal, and I want you to know we sort of buffered one another so he couldn't do much damage to all of us weak-minded people. Wonder what it's like to be perfect. Now I know, and I liked being flawed. Walter made me come up to my folks to regroup. You should know your ex-asshole and I never dated. I just rented a room in his house. I hope you have found joy and happiness in your life, Christina, no matter what else your ex is an abusive man, and I so hoped Crystal had stayed with you and Keith. Now I'm gone, she will have to go back to the constant criticism that man doles out. She can do nothing right in his eyes, and I tried to guide her in strong points like her artistic abilities. Christina, please do not have any further contact with me. You told Crystal some things I may have said. Now I have Mike Howell threatening me for calling you and talking to you. I've had all I'm going to take. I do not deserve to be treated in such a manner as I have. I am a most kind and exceptionally nice woman who only wants some peace and happiness. I remove myself from all situations concerning this nightmare. I now have to worry he will come after me. I have been played and put in the middle. I am most upset and want nothing more to do with any of it. Now, this is Christina's response to you. Halt, I don't know what he is capable of. My aunt was afraid he would hurt me. He used to hide in the woods and watch my house from what he has told me. I can't let my mind go back. I've spent five years trying to move forward. Be cautious, but do not let him make you live in fear. I will not mention your name when I speak to Crystal. If she brings it up, I'll say we just talked one time and you wanted me to know you care about her. I do not want you to have to fear for your safety. I know what that is like. No one should feel that fear. What's your response listening to that exchange? Granted, I was very upset when I was made to leave. And when I say that Michael was always right, he was in the things that he knew. He knew hatred. He knew everything and he would not take responsibility for anything that he felt inside. So a man should be strong, but show weakness and empathy. And Mike didn't have any empathy. You cannot show weakness. And he just would sit there and be the king of his own world. In texting with Christina, I knew that after I had initially spoken with her and Crystal and Mike, Crystal told Mike what I had said or done. She was doing that to take some pressure from herself because, and I, and I knew that at the time I knew, you know, she's just trying to get him off her because things are very explosive right now. It was right after our explosion and I had to leave. So Crystal's there with her dad and it must be very raw at this point. I just wanted Christina to know 
that she needed to protect her daughter, that Mike was um, capable of, of terrible things. And I knew that from the conversations we had had when he said he would kill his wife if he had half a chance. Um, I, I'm sure that she lived with some type of abuse. Um, had mental and verbal abuse can be as bad as getting beaten up, I think. Um, just from my own experiences in life. So I don't know what Christina had to go through. Michael came from a family. I don't think they were very close knit. I know his father had mental problems and committed suicide. His mother had remarried a much older man. And I think Michael was left to his own devices a good part of the time. And he was very strong. Um, and competitive. He was. He played baseball. He went to um, a two-year college on a baseball degree, on scholarship, I believe. And then he went to Georgia and got his his um, journalism degree. He was very hard on himself when he played golf, um, and it was all about being strong. And I was really afraid that. You know, I don't know if he ever hit Christina, but I can tell you right now, words can hurt a whole lot. Well, we we did obtain legal documents um, with Christina's interview and Sierra and Christina and other family members verify that um, they said Michael Howell was abusive physically, um, emotionally, verbally. And that's the thing is, you know. We, we don't know the extent of it and you know nobody's you know we're not trying to judge uh Christina we're just laying out the facts in a storyboard um her decisions were probably ignited from her own personal experience with with Michael uh through the marriage and um it may be that led to some distance with with her and crystal she's very open that she pretty much lost communication and, and any no awareness of what was happening between Crystal and, and Michael in that house because they weren't communicating at all. She admits that. But your text exchange, what stood out to me as important is it's her once again corroborating that she has dealt with fear and, you know, abuse of, of some kind. And if she feared him and she had to live in fear of Michael, what was a 17 year old dealing with in a very isolated remote area? When you drive up this mountaintop and you pass all other houses and what's left is their house on top with no one else in earshot, no neighbor nearby. What was happening? I mean, it it goes to corroborate Crystal feeling she had nowhere to run, nowhere to go, no one to turn to. And, and to me, that's why your text message are, it's just a chain and a map of corroborating evidence of what Crystal was trying to say and explain is she felt at the time there was no other option. There was no outlet. It seems that she reached out to people, to law enforcement, to people in mental health, and to no avail. It's like they, they met Mike, who was very socially, had social graces and had manners, knew how to speak. So I'm sure he said all the right things. Now, 
the distance between Crystal and her mother, and I think that this is probably part of it, is the uncle. Right. And she did not believe that Uncle Brian touched her daughter. But I'm telling you as a mother, if your daughter comes to you and says something like that, you better get to the bottom of it and not just turn it off. And she did. And not only did she do that, she actually would throw it into Crystal's face. When Crystal would be there, all of a sudden she'd walk into a room and there he'd be. And it's like, why is he here? So there are many wrongs on many different levels. I think Crystal was just put through the ringer. The adults in her life who were supposed to protect her were the ones that did all the damage. And she's the one who has to, her life is ruined. I mean, I'm not saying what she did was right because certainly it was not, but I do feel like she broke. And she broke because Michael broke. And she didn't know what to do. She didn't have anybody to turn to. She didn't. She could have called me, but I didn't know any of this. And had she called me, I probably would have just been right there. Somehow, I get, I mean, I can't say what I, what would I have done. But I know that living with Michael one-on-one in the middle of winter on that mountain was hard. So, Jillian, she, I just well, want to repeat this because I think this is a way to kind of, you know, end with your, your final thoughts. She broke because Michael broke. That, that strikes me. Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it just goes to show you how there is more than one victim in this story. It's not just Michael Howell, but it's Crystal. It's her mother. It's her sister. It's you. It's her friends. It's everybody that was involved in this tragedy. Um, I guess a whole, and I thank you so much for sharing your story with us and all of your interactions and all your experiences that you went through surrounding this. But if you could have one takeaway for the audience after after listening to Crystal's story. One thing that you want the listeners to take away from all of this, what would it be? I, I love Crystal. She's as good to me as any of my own children or their friends. I believe, and it took years for me to find the truth. I didn't know what to think, but once Aunt Brenda reached out to me. I prayed about it for about two minutes and said, yes, I will be in her life. Have her contact me. And she has been straightforward with me. She is bright, articulate, and don't anybody think for a minute that her life is not ruined because it is and she suffers every single day i've only heard crystal cry one time the whole time i've known her and it was within the last year and she just broke down she's gonna have a hard life ahead of her because she lives with this every day anybody who thinks she's a cold-blooded killer is wrong she is strong because she has to be, but she's she's a woman. 
she has feelings and she's hurt and she's been hurt her whole life apparently and everybody needs to understand that or try to see that or try to see the good in her because she has many good qualities and I love her and I'm with her. This has been such an emotional journey for Kelly and I, and we thank you for sticking through everything that we've uncovered. And this is far from over for us. You know, I'm really cemented in advocating for Crystal to get a lesser sentence. I strongly feel she doesn't deserve 30 to life. She doesn't deserve the ridiculous added five to seven year charge of failure to report a body um, plus first degree murder. And all of this was done on a plea deal. And, you know, we're, we're going to stick to continuing to follow this and, um, advocating for her because we think this is one of those cases that deserves it. We think she deserves a second chance at life. You know, you're right, Melissa. When you first brought this case to me, I always knew there was something more to it. There was something more to the story. And it just goes to show you that people like us in the media, you know, you can't sometimes always believe what the media says. And I I hope that we've been able to present both sides of this story And like I said, Crystal is a victim here. Her mother's a victim. Her sister's a victim. Everybody involved in this is a victim. And and I do hope that after all of this, everybody can find some peace and move forward, you know, and hopefully Crystal will get to move forward sooner rather than the 30-year sentence that she received. And I said this in the beginning, do I believe that Crystal deserves some sort of punishment? Yes, I do. I've never wavered from that, but I do not think She deserved the sentence that she got. And if you feel that Crystal does deserve a reduced sentence, we created a petition at Change.org called Reduce Crystal Howell's Sentence. I encourage you to sign it and send any messages that we will forward on to her. Now, as you heard in the last bonus episode, you know, Crystal grew up singing. It's her passion. She's also a fantastic writer. She's also a fantastic artist. Now, she's housed in other pods with girls, and she sometimes sings for them. She sings with them. And now she sings for us again out of this series. So here's an encore of Crystal singing from Anson Prison in North Carolina. I heard there was a secret chord, this David Clay, and it pleased the Lord. You don't really care for music, do we are? It goes like this, a fourth, a fifth, a minor fall, a major lift, a battle clean, composing, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Baby, I've been here before. I've seen this room. I've walked this floor. I used to live alone before I knew yours. I've seen your plan on the marble arch. Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Maybe there's a daughter's arm, 
Somebody who's been alive It's a cold in here to broken 